wonderful to be here with you this morning. Um, my name's Anthony, and I serve on the eldership of this church. Uh, so we're continuing with our memoirs series, uh, which is uh, a journey through the book of Philippians. If you weren't here last week, uh, you missed a great message from Tertius, who leads the Every Nation Church in Worcester. So I highly recommend um, that podcast to you. And as I said, we're going to be uh, we're going to be going through Philippians 2 this morning. So if you do have your Bible, if you could turn there with me. And just before we do that, before we read through the whole chapter, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Lord, we recognize your lordship over all of creation, over your church, and over our lives. We declare holy, holy, holy are you, O Lord God Almighty. We pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would show us who you are, that you would fill us, Lord, with wonder as we gaze upon you, as we look to Jesus. Lord, because you are the author and the finisher of our lives, our salvation, our eternal destinies. You are our healer our deliverer, our savior, our redeemer. And you are our friend. And together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, this morning we offer you worship. We worship you, Heavenly Father. We worship you, King Jesus. We worship you, wonderful Lord Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that this morning every heart would be stirred by a new revelation of your Lordship and all that that means to us. We bless you, Lord. Amen. All right. I need my glasses for this. Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, you can tick all of those boxes. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and being of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto, a thing to be taken advantage of, other translations say. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and, on, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, at, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So it's a fairly long passage, so thanks for sticking with us. We're going to do a lot of Bible today. Um, we, we're really going to focus on going up to, up to verse 16. I'm not going to say anything more about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, but I would just remark that Paul says he knows he has no one else like Timothy. What high praise. What an extraordinary man Timothy must have been. And he says of Epaphroditus that he risked his life for the gospel. So if you have a moment to go through the book of Philippians and particularly this chapter, meditate a little bit on the example that these two set for us. We're going to cover three, um, three topics this morning. The Lordship of Christ, the example of Christ, and living for Christ. And in case you hadn't noticed, um, after us, our, um, our, our worship in the, in the music this morning, today is all about Jesus. And in fact, our lives are all about Jesus. Um, so thank you, Brian, and to the worship team for that, that song list, which was so beautifully chosen and so beautifully implemented. So we're going to kick off with uh, verse 6 and then move on to verse 10 and 11. We're going to talk about the, the lordship of Christ, which is really our focus area. So in verse 6, Paul, said, talking about Jesus, says, though he was in the form of God. We're going to come back to that in a moment. And then in verse 9, he says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now in the New Testament canon, in, in the, the whole of the New Testament, we have these, these moments of 
magnificent praise of the person of Jesus and the work that he's done. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, some of the theological doctrine of Jesus and the person that he is. But before we get into that, I want us just to step back and enjoy the wonder and the beauty and the splendor of who he is. So in, um, in, in the opening verses of the book of Hebrews, the writer says, long ago, and, and I love how poetic they, they can sometimes be, he said, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. You must bear in mind that this is a Jewish person writing to a Jewish audience. So he said, God spoke to our fathers, our predecessors, through the, through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the worlds. He is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, he, through his words, he sustains the whole universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, in other words, after completing the work of salvation, he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What a beautiful scripture. And then in Colossians chapter one, Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We speak about that scripture quite a lot, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but for about six or seven verses, Paul extols the deity of Jesus. And then we think about John chapter one, that wonderful scripture where John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was right there in the beginning. Everything that was made was made through Jesus. And a little bit later in John chapter 1, and there's, there's the different translations of this, so I want to read it in the English Standard Version. He says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Some other translations say the only son who is in the bosom of the father, he has made him known to us. But what the writer, what John is trying to express to us is that Jesus, he's, he's been there since the beginning. He's the author of salvation. He is with God and he is God. So I love reading those scriptures. I love meditating on them. I love saying them to myself and my children will tell you to them again and again and again because they extol the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is. So if we go back to in the form of God, I think it's absolutely essential that we understand as Christians that, that Jesus is the pre-existent eternal Son of God. He has always existed. He existed before the, the foundation of any world, before the history of time. He has always been with the Father. So in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 here, Paul speaks about how um, Jesus was in the form of God, and he then emptied himself out. He came down to earth, he took on the form of a servant, he took on the likeness of man, and then he was crucified on the cross. We refer to this as the humiliation of Jesus. He was in heaven, he enjoyed the full benefits of being part of the, our triune God, 
the eternal pre-existent son of God, and he came down to earth. But that does not mean for a moment that he, he emptied himself of being God. He was still 100% God, and he became 100% man. So when, when Paul writes that he emptied himself, what he's referring to here is he's saying that he took on humanity. He clothed himself in our humanity and in our brokenness. It's almost like his glory became hidden. But inside, he was still 100% God. He always has been, and he always will be. And Jesus revealed this to us often, uh, especially in the, in the book of John. So, for instance, in John chapter 8, he declared very boldly to the Pharisees. He said, before Abraham was, I am. I am being the Old Testament expression for the person of God. And the, the way that was pronounced in Hebrew was Yahweh or Jehovah. So he was testifying to them that he was God himself. And that's why they picked up stones to throw at him. It seemed like whenever Jesus encountered the Pharisees, they were looking for stones so that they could throw at him. And, and John continues to extol that truth to, to us, that, that Jesus, while he was on earth, he self-identified as God. In chapter 10, he said, I know the Father, and the Father knows me. Now, I think that the most important thing in life, the very meaning of life, is to know God. And I look forward to day by day getting to know God better. And one day I'm going to go to heaven. And for all of eternity, I'm going to get to know God a little bit better every day. But because God is so infinite, I don't think I'll ever fully grasp the reality, the enormity, the splendor of who the Father is. But Jesus said, I know my Father and my Father knows me. That means, Jesus is effectively saying, I know all things. I am the omniscient God together with the Father because I alone know the Father. So Jesus carried with him all the time that self-identity that he is God. So he always has been God he, and he always will be God. He always will be the eternal son and our victorious God-man redeemer. So Jesus humiliated himself. He came down to earth. He took on the form of the creature that he had made, man. He became as a slave, and he suffered the most terrible and humiliating death on the cross. And then God exalted him. I find this so fascinating. Jesus always was God. He was God in his person. He was God in um, the creative force that he was in the universe. But when he came down to earth and when he suffered death on the cross and was then resurrected, he was raised to life and ascended to heaven as our incarnate redeemer. So he always was God because of who he was. But now he became, if you like, almost doubly God because of what he had done. Because as the God-man, he had restored us to the Father if we choose to believe in him by faith. And, and that, is, that is why Paul writes that God then exalted him and, on bestow, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. And then the, he goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. But what he's also saying here is that the, the God's own name, I am, is also applicable to Jesus. Um, and, and, of, and of course, I, I mentioned that in John chapter 8, um, 
Jesus had said, before Abraham was, I am. I, wa- I want to just highlight for, um, how this passage of Scripture echoes something else in Isaiah 45, because uh, I think this makes it plain so beautifully. Right, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So the Old Testament God, Jehovah, says, I am God and there is no other. And to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And that is what Paul, who was an extraordinary Jewish scholar, an extraordinary scholar of the Old Testament scriptures, that's what he's referencing here. That, uh, and, and he's making this claim effectively that Jesus is as God. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in our lives, I think that this foundational truth is something that we should, we should meditate on, we should repeat, we should live with this truth every day. For me, Two of the most powerful words are Lord Jesus. When I wake up in the morning, I find myself praying that, saying that, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. You know, I think one could argue that the sinner's prayer, the the, the prayer of faith to receive salvation, could even be distilled down to just those two words. Lord, I, I accept your lordship. I recognize you, Lord Jesus. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. So saying Lord Jesus is a powerful affirmation of who we are as the children of God. And when we say Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, at the beginning of every day, through every day, at the end of every day, what we are doing is we are anchoring ourselves in the Lordship of Christ. And that's a powerful place to be. I love, what, um, I love what Thomas said, uh, the, the disciple that wasn't there when Jesus first appeared. And 2,000 years later, we still have this expression, doubting Thomas. And I feel sorry for Thomas. I, I love the declaration that he made. Jesus now appears to, to all the disciples. They're there. And he says, Thomas, you know, put your hand in the hole in my hand. Put your hand in the gash the scar, the hole in my side. And Thomas falls to his knees and he says these five words, my Lord and my God. For the disciples, there was no ambiguity. Jesus was God. And this is a, this is a faith. This is a, a, a belief that we must defend and contend for with all of our hearts. So I want to read to you something from the book of Jude. How often is it that you go to church and someone reads from the book of Jude? (laughs) It's the second last book in the Bible. And it's hard to find because it's just one page. Second John. Right, the book of Jude. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you, about our common salvation. I found it necessary to to write appealing to you to contend for the faith 
What is he talking about? What is our faith? And in whom is our faith? I'm reminded of Romans chapter 1 where Paul says, the just shall live by faith. And in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when Jude writes, contend for the faith, he's writing about this faith that we have in Jesus. So hold on to that for a moment. Contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. God takes this kind of stuff seriously. That, you know, in this modern day age, there's lots of, there's lots of new thinking. There are lots of new opinions. There are professors of theology that are saying, oh, well, just hold on. But maybe he meant that. Or, you know, you know God didn't really say. Or, you know, the reliability of the scriptures is not really something that you can build your life on. But Jude writes, contend for the faith and watch out for those that deny our Lord and our Master, Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul feels so strongly about this. At the end of his first letter to Corinthians, he says, let anybody that does not love the Lord be accursed. He's like, wow, New Testament. That's strong language, Paul. But this is the reality of it. Even Jesus said in John chapter 5, he said, if you don't honor me, you're not honoring my Father. If you don't honor Jesus, you are dishonoring the Father. So Jesus takes that seriously. And and I think that this is something that we should, we should immerse ourselves in. I love the way the old time saints did it. When I was growing up as an Anglican, every Sunday we would say the creed, which, which I've got here for you as well. Look at this. The Nicene Creed, the creed, this was adopted for the first time in AD 325, when a new heresy came into the church that said, Jesus actually isn't God. He is a created being. He's a prophet. Then you're putting yourself in the camp of the Muslims who say, yeah, we, we, we know about Jesus. The Quran speaks about Jesus. He's a prophet. He's descended from Abraham, but he's not God. You're putting in yourself in the same camp as the Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. And look at this. There's just one sentence at the start that talks about the Father. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. That's the Father's portion. We jump down to the bottom. It's about the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. The Holy Spirit is just as worthy of our worship as the Father and the Son. But most of the body of this creed is about Jesus because because our, the fathers of our faith, the early church fathers, recognized that if the devil's going to bring an assault against our faith, it's against Jesus. And it's against the person of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. And that's why it's so important that we hold on to this. So let's say that. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Begotten of his Father before all worlds, God 
of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, who for, for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, and on the th- he suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And repeating that, those truths, massaging, massaging them into our lives, into our hearts, into our souls, reminds us of who he is. So that's the lordship of Christ. And in our church, we do not make any apology for declaring it, for affirming it, for singing it, for preaching it again and again and again. He is Lord and there is no other. Jesus is our 100%. <laughs> not 99, not 100%. He is our exclusive Savior. Our salvation is found in no other and he is entirely our, self, our sufficient Savior. Right, so that's the Lordship of Christ. Let's talk briefly about the example of Christ. Paul started off by saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort, if there is any affection, any love, you know, then, then, then please make me happy. You know, be of one mind and be of one heart. Be united in the faith and don't only look after your own interests but the interests of others. And our starting point here in looking at this is to say, absolutely, there is that encouragement, there is that love, there is that strength. We speak about... Uh, in Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says, His divine power has given us everything that we need to live a life of, to, to live a life of, of godliness. Um, Paul speaks in Ephesians about every spiritual blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So we have all that we need to do what God asks us to do, which is to love others. We have all that we need. We have the power of God in our lives. Uh, Paul said that, that God poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us in Romans chapter 5. So our starting point is we have enough to love others. I know it's difficult. I know it can be hard to, to love others when they hurt you. It's, it's difficult to rejoice. It's difficult to live a life of gratitude, you know, when, when life is hard, and life so often is hard, but God says he's given us more than enough spiritual energy to do so. And then he writes about showing honor and consideration for others. I'm reminded of what John said in his, in his first letter, 1 John 3, 16. He says, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus poured out his life for us, and so we should pour out our lives for each, for each other. In, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor to one another. So this is Christianity 101. We understand this, that we should have the same mind of Jesus, follow the example of Jesus. In fact, if you flip back one page to Ephesians chapter 5, he says, therefore be imitators of God. Imitate Jesus as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 
a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That is the example that Jesus gave for us. Then there's, there's, there's a third point to this that I want to talk about. And I think that this is perhaps somewhat controversial. Jesus, the eternal pre-existent Son of God, is in heaven. There are no tears in heaven. There's no sadness, no suffering, no pain in heaven. And he comes down from heaven to earth where there's more than enough of all of the above. He takes on our pain and our suffering. Jesus moves from a place of perfection, sufficiency, comfort, and he moves towards our suffering. So we've just spoken about the example of Christ. I believe that suffering is an important part of the Christian journey. And Jesus showed us by his example that we should move towards suffering and not run away from it. Often we want to live behind our high walls. We want to live with our comforts and we want to ignore the fact that billions of people are struggling. So many people have no hope. There is none so poor as the one that has no hope. There are so many, there's so much brokenness, so much evil, um, so much sadness, so much grief out there. And the Father asks us to walk towards that suffering and to embrace that suffering. Jesus said, weep with those that weep. If we can just cover this in a few more scriptures. Um, in, in Hebrews chapter 5, um, the writer said that Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says to us, rejoice not only in the hope of glory, but rejoice also in your suffering, because suffering produces steadfastness, and steadfastness produces character, and character produces hope. In James chapter 1, James says, consider it all joy, brothers, when you face various kinds of trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. But let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So we have this consistency across the New Testament that we will not reach a place of maturity or perfection or completeness unless we first endure some suffering. So would it be that suffering would once again become a core value of the church, that we would move away from that prosperity gospel, that God just wants to lavish goodness and kindness on me and life's going to be amazing and wonderful, to recognizing once again that suffering is important. And if there's no suffering in your life, and, and I'm that kind of person, I've never had a, a parent die. Our children are very blessed. All four of their grandparents are still in good health. Um, I've, I've, never ha I've never experienced financial lack. I've never had a debilitating disease. I've never experienced a lot of suffering in my life. That's okay. God calls me to go and stand next to someone else who experiences suffering in his or her life. I love the words of, a, of an 80s gospel singer, a guy called Steve Camp. He sings a song called, Do You Feel Their Pain? And the chorus goes, do you feel their pain? 
Does it touch your life? Can you taste the salt in the tears they cry? Now just imagine for a moment that I'm crying. So there's a tear running down my cheek. Henry, can you taste the salt in the tear that I'm crying? Come a little closer. Closer, closer, closer. Come stand next to me. Okay, hold my hand. Not like that. <laughs> okay. Can you taste the salt in the tear I'm crying? Almost, but not yet. This is how it works. When we are close, when we are cheek to cheek, thanks, brother. <laughs> are you encouraged? Are you strengthened? That's the, that's the gospel that, that God is calling us to. So when, and we're very bad at this in, in the West, in our Western type society. When someone dies, we say, well, give the family space. You know, leave them to their grief. As the church, we like, get in there. You know, get close to people. Love them. When someone's suffering in sickness or in financial lack, or has lost a job, is separated from a spouse, children, there's any manner of grief. Get close to people. Hug them. Love them. That is the kind of love that Jesus showed to us. He came down from heaven, and he became close to us. He took on our humanity. His godliness was entirely hidden because he completely immersed himself in our humanity. And that is the kind of love that God asks us to show. That we would experience suffering in the church. That we would mourn with those that mourn, weep with those that weep. That we would visit widows and orphans in their suffering. That's what James says. True, this is true religion. That you visit widows and orphans in their affliction. That you visit the prison. Whatever your ministry is, do it with the love of God. So that's the example of Christ. Living for Christ. Let's read from verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So I'm going to highlight that. I'm going to come back to that. So note that. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. We need to hear that again and again. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And I want to say that the world really is a fallen world, an evil, evil world, a twisted and a crooked world. And throughout Scripture, we see this distinction highlighted between good and evil. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says to the, to the Israelites, he says, I call heaven and earth today as witnesses against you. Heaven and earth, witness against, witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. So he's distinguishing between good and evil. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. In um, in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul says, hate what is evil, 
hold fast to what is good. In Romans chapter 16, verse 19, he says, be excellent in what is good. Be innocent of evil. All through scripture, we make this distinction. And Jesus calls us to be lights in the darkness. He said, um, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 1, verse 4, uh, it says that in him was life. Uh, in him was life, and this life was the light of the world, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he says to us, you are the light of the world. Therefore shine, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. So this is what Paul is echoing. He's saying that we must shine as lights in the darkness. I've just in thinking about this, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian that shines as light in this twisted and crooked generation? I, I put down six points. I'm going to just go back one. I'm going to major on the first two. I'm just going to briefly mention the last four. Um, to, to watch the words that we speak because the power of life and death is in the, in the tongue. And, and Paul said there in Philippians, he said, don't murmur, don't grumble, don't complain. Give thanks rather. We speak about abiding in the word. For me, this is really absolutely key. Jesus said, abide in my word. If you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We, we, we just finished a series on the I am statements. Peter preached on I am the vine. Abide in me and then you will bear much fruit. To live generously, this is something that we talk about a lot in, in our church, so I don't need to cover that in too much more detail. Um, I love what Paul says in Acts. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Um, and, then, and then to give thanks. You know, our lives should be marked by gratitude. One of the greatest books I ever read is called 1,000 Gifts, about a woman in Canada that was challenged to start a list of things for which she was grateful, and she got up to a thousand. And I read this book, and it's all about this journey of learning to be grateful for everything. So we can focus on our problems, or we can look to God and focus on what He's done for us. And I always say, remember your blessings. Count your blessings. Be, start the day thinking about what God has done for me. So those, are, those three, four, five, and six there, those are, I, I think are some things that, that that we need to do, and I don't think there's going to be any controversy about that. So we can all say yes and amen. <laughs> Number one and two are a little bit more dif uh, different and maybe, maybe a little bit more controversial. Paul says here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, it says, so after Peter's um, first great sermon, I think it's either 5,000 or 3,000 people come to faith, and then it speaks about the new church and, and how they, they engaged with another. And it said, and awe came upon them all, or fear, or reverence. Those are the, the, the other words that different translations use. So fear of God is not just an Old Testament thing. Paul says, as you walk this journey of life, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, remembering that early testament, the, the New Testament church, the first century church, that, um, that experience, that awe. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, God says to the children of Israel again, he says, hear, O Israel, this is what the Lord your God requires of you. So you wonder, what's he going to say first? 
What does God require of us first? And the first thing that he says is, fear the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways, love him, serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, and obey the commands and the statutes that he, the Lord, is giving you today for your own good. The first thing that he says is, fear God. In Proverbs it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of, uh, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I want to read from Proverbs chapter 3, um, which is just filled with so much wisdom. And there's, we've got these beautiful if-then statements. So, so the first thing he says is, take, take heed. He's talking to his, his child. I'll read it. It might be easier for me to say it than to find it. It says, pay, pay attention to what I'm saying and let your heart keep my commands. That's an interesting thing to say just by the way because ordinarily if you've got a list of commands to remember, you're going to keep them in your head, not your heart. But for things to truly resonate um, through our whole being, they need to go from our head to our hearts. Let your heart keep my commands, for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. So obey and then all these blessings. And then he says, let not mercy, so let not steadfast love and faithfulness depart from you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so find favor and high esteem in the sights of God and man. And then the one that's really famous, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Which doesn't mean don't think about stuff. It says, just says don't put all of your faith in your understanding. So don't rationalize everything. Rationalize a lot. That's me. I like to rationalize things. Okay? But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit working inside of you that's going to direct you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. And He will direct your paths. And then to the part that I want to focus on. He says... Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be a smarty pants. Don't think of yourself as being too clever. Fear God and turn away from evil. Fear God and turn away from evil. It'll be health to your flesh and refreshing to your bones. So we, we have this instruction to fear God. And so we understand that God is our Father. He loves us, that we are His children. And when you're abiding in God, when you're so close to God, the, the fear of God seems to be absent because there's this closeness, there's this intimacy. But if you, if you stray just a little bit, then I pray that the fear of God would remind you to come back, to come back to that place of intimacy. Fearing God and being terrified of the consequence of sin, I think is essential. We need to recognize that in this world of good and evil, where we shine as lights in the midst of a twisted and a crooked and an evil generation, there, there are these choices to be made and there are consequences. So that's why I've made as my second point to turn away from evil. If I can be vulnerable for a moment, I've thought about this a lot. I've thought about what are the sins, the evils that entrap us as Christians and for me, the big three, the, the axis of evil sins would be sexual immorality, the love of money, 
and unforgiveness. Those are the three that I would highlight that I think are most relevant and are most dangerous to us as the 21st century Christian church. I want to read a few scriptures. So again, if we just go one page back from Philippians chapter 2 to Ephesians. And of course, Paul is writing different letters to different churches, and often he's echoing the same theme. But from verse 3, and, and you'll hear these themes being echoed, he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually or immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There are consequences for sin. The wrath of God comes upon sin. And then he says, for... You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of, God, children of light. And then a little bit further down, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. So we can hear the echo that he makes there. I want to read also from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 and 5. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral, immoral and adulterous. This is New Testament stuff, folks. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I'll just go a little bit earlier to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no, in inverted commas, root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. The root of bitterness, I think, often can be associated with unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is a terrible thing. If there's unforgiveness or bitterness in your heart, you need to let it go. Because it's a cancer that will eat you up. Jesus forgave us, and for our sakes, he urges us, forgive those that sin against you. The writer goes on to say, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know what happened afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. Esau was presented as the firstborn. He was presented with, this is your inheritance. And he swapped it for a single moment of carnal pleasure. In this case, it was a meal. He swapped everything that God had for him, his purpose and his destiny, for one moment of fleshly pleasure. The last one I want to read is, well, I'll just say it is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Um, Paul writes, he says, watch out for the love of money. He said, because of this, many have departed the faith and they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So my contention to you this morning is that all three of these things 
have this result. They result in bitterness in your life and they result in your life being pierced through with many sorrows. And that's not a place where you want to be. So um, in pre-service prayer this morning, Brian read from Hebrews, quoted from Hebrews chapter 12. Let go of the sin that so easily entangles us, that, that clings to you. And run the race that is set before us with endurance, looking unto Jesus. So if you feel that you're, in your life you've become mired down in sin, then what you need to do is you need to look to Jesus. Because he's the one that can rescue us. He's the one that can set us free from these things. I want to, I want to emphasize again that God, our Father, sent Jesus, his Son, to bring us life. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life. When we invest our faith, so much more than mental assent, but when we agree with, with our body, with our soul, and with our spirit, and when our behavior as Christians lines up with that, when we shine as lights, reflecting His glory, when we invest our faith and our whole lives in Him, in the Lordship of Jesus, when we look to Him, then we're going to live a victorious and triumphant life, a life that is characterized by abundant life, that the blessings of God, the peace, the joy, the hope, we can know even in the most desperate times, and even when we do endure suffering, and even when we come close to someone else that is experiencing suffering, and we weep, and we feel that pain, and we mourn with someone, we, are, we can still experience that abundant, wonderful, magnificent life because of who He is, because of who our Jesus is.